Jason Mayer. With me, once again, is my co-host, Carrie Wood. Hello, hello. Hi, Carrie. Welcome back. Thank you. I'm glad uh, to be back. Can you remind all the folks out there where they can find you online? They can find me at carriewoodld.com. Okay. This is the conclusion of our interview with Mike Baldessari. In the last episode, Mike and Carrie and I talked about film, television, events, and a couple of other things. In this episode, we're going to talk about concerts, theater, and the business of the business that we're in. Thanks for joining us. Now, on with the show. My cousin took me to go see Kiss at Madison Square Garden, December 15th, 1977. And I remember being there. I was in junior high school, and somebody hit a button, blinded 20,000 people or 15,000 people, and they all stood up and cheered. And I was like, I want to be the guy who hits that button. <laughs> now, I mean, now now everyone's just tired of having light in their eyes and all that kind of stuff, but yeah. that was a really, that was a big thing. It was a foreword to a book that Richard Eyre wrote. He recounted this story of how there was a snowstorm and the Medici's called Michelangelo to come make a snowman, basically. And they said that was the greatest sculpture he ever did, Michelangelo's snowman. And then what happened to it? It melted. No record of it. And Richard Eyre was using this metaphor, but I, I re it really stuck with me. That's a metaphor for theater. Theater exists for that one night only. That performance, that audience, that group of actors, it will never be the same again. It melts. And I think that, I think concerts are the same way. Going back to how you started out, and I love hearing about how you just searched out the lighting designers for, you know, these concerts. And it's something I feel like... I was with, a pest. With the internet, I, I don't see young people doing it as much. I could be wrong, but yeah. I... <clears throat> well, I think what's different is now you can just contact somebody. Right. You know, you I had to go, like, I had to go find my way to... Like, when I talk about, you know, Monsters of Rock, I was, like, like I said, banging steel. Or I was... I think I ran a... Yeah, I, I ran a... No, I ran, I ran a front of house spot. But I had to go find my way to lighting design. And I had to go find a pen and a piece of paper and get him to give me his phone number. Right. You know, and um, I had no, uh, look, I'm a guy from New Jersey. I don't have a problem being a pest. <laughs> you know, I, I come from a big Italian family. If you don't ask, you don't get, you know. Right. But I feel like that effort really adds to your whole career oh. and, you know, your work ethic. I, I, well, I, th I think one of the things that, I realized early enough on was I remember being in high school and holding a gel book and I just thought I thought it was magic you know holding this this gel book but I thought oh they must have special gel that they work with on Broadway and stuff I can't be holding the same stuff they do and then eventually you find out nah it's all the same stuff and then I think for in my case at least I was I said to myself well someone's got to do it why, why not me I, I guess I was fortunate enough to have that kind of confidence that a lot of that's my parents for sure, which which I think people try to say to their kids anyway that you know you can do anything, but I think a lot of that was my my parents and my family. The other thing that led me into theater and stuff, in this kind of weird way, so my dad was an electrical engineer. He was in charge of all the substations in New Jersey for Jersey Central Power and Light. My mom was a librarian, uh, but I had these two uncles, my Uncle Phil and my Uncle Billy, and Uncle Phil was a mason and Uncle Billy was a truck driver. But when we got together, the stories that they would tell about their work was just like I would, I was a, a little kid and I would like, you literally like pee your pants. It was so funny. And it just sounded like they had so much fun with what they did. Now, of course, you go to realize later on, it's absolutely backbreaking work, but it sounded like fun. And my dad sat behind a desk and that didn't seem like fun at all. So for me, theater was sort of the, exact crossroads, at least when I started out, of those two things. That it was, it was enough mental stuff, there was enough things that satisfied the sitting behind a desk, but there was also the physical work. And that's not what I want to do anymore. But as a teenager, you know, those, my, my two uncles were really big influences on just about having fun. And, and I still try all the time to this day, you know, ha I think having fun is like the most important thing. I, I mean, I started as a drummer. 
I think of myself still as a musician. And I remember being in a, in a band in you know, junior high school and high school, and we would go play any, anything to get out of class, right? So we would go play at the elementary schools, and they would, they would like let us out of class, <laughs> me and the other guys in the band, to go play at the elementary schools. We would go play in like some elementary school gymnasium and with the lights out and had a couple of lights and you would get this incredible reaction. And then we'd go play with the same, same kids, same music, but outside, no reaction. For me, it was like, oh, lighting. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Interesting. And, and I hate to say the light bulb went off, but it was just so obvious to me that, that it was lighting that was doing it. And then I went to a really great high school in Parsippany, New Jersey. So it was Parsippany Hills High School that had a really great theater program. You know, it didn't do things the way they're necessarily done in theater, but they produced a lot of plays. It ended up being my after-school job. Every little thing that came in that was uh, the, the local ballet school, their recital to some nurse's graduation or whatever. So that was my after-school job. That was, I spent all of my like junior and senior year of high school. I really got, I actually got hooked. Again, I started as a musician. And in junior high school, somebody said, we're doing this production. I have no idea what it was. Um, do you still have your drums? Can you come and like make a loud noise? I was like, well, I know how to make loud noises. So I showed up and they, somebody cued me and I had to do like two hits in the wings or something like that. And by intermission, I was helping them change the scenery. Mm-hmm. You know, so it was, just, it was just one of those things. I'm glad, I mean, I'm glad you mentioned the connection between Jules Fisher and Kiss and mm-hmm. those kind of lighting designers who began creating the business of concert lighting design. And you've done a bunch of concert lighting design yourself. Right. What are your thoughts on concert lighting design as it was, as it is, as it will be? Yikes. Well, I, I think that... Are we just over-lighting the band anymore? Like, no one wants to light the band. Well, I got to tell you, I'll be really honest. Some of that stuff drives me crazy. And wh- what I've always said is, people say, I'm going to see the Rolling Stones tonight. Nobody says I'm going to hear them because they sound better on record. You're going to see them. You're going to be in the same room with the people and share an experience. That's what theater is. So I try to really think of it as an audience member. I want to go see Neil Young, or I want to go see Alice in Chains. I don't want to go hear them. I want to go see it. You know, I want to be part of that experience. And I, I've been on tours and stuff where they're like, do you want to use any file spots? You know, like we'd be on the bill with somebody else. And I'm damn straight we're going to use follow spots. And then their act's not using any follow spots, and it's all nice and dark. And then... The band I'm working with comes out with follow spots, and you can see everybody, and people are rocking, you know, and they're kicking the ass of the other band. And then a couple nights later, now they got follow spots too. I, I just think it's not fair to people who are paying for the tickets. Let, let them see it. Let them see who they're coming to pay the money to see, you know. And it's the same thing with all of the video and stuff that's in. I mean, some acts are, are very careful and clever about it. I think I think what Jeff does with... Springsteen is completely appropriate. And I think Bruce, according to Jeff, you know, Bruce is very aware of the video screens when they don't hang them in a place where people are going to watch TV. And I think that people pay all this huge amount of money to go to see a concert now. I I like to go and and look at people's eyeline. And I think if you go to a place like, like the garden and you see everybody on the floor and they're looking up and not straight, I don't think you've succeeded. They're, they're paying a lot of money to go see Simon and Garfunkel. They could stay at home if they want to watch a TV. Right. And I've had numerous conversations with people. Somebody asked me, uh, I, was at, I was at a show, a friend of mine was the guitar tech on, and they asked me, would I take notes for them? And I said, sure, do you want me to, like, you want to say notes and you want me to write them down? And they said, no, 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 I want your notes. I said, okay, I'll give them to you. And one of, one of my notes was that, the lead singer, like, I couldn't see him. He looked great on screen, but I couldn't see him. And I, I said, look, that's, you have to go get with the video engineer, and you have to find a balance. It's not fair to the people that paid all this money. They don't want to be there watching TV. You can do it. You can find a balance. But I think where rock and roll was, uh, it, it was really pioneers. I mean, the people who were just putting these things in the back of their trucks and driving around. And you look at some of the pictures of the first lighting rigs and, um, you know, what you know, somebody like Steve Terry did or, or Bob C. Unfortunately, we just lost. But, you know, I remember his, um, I think it was for, I'm going to say it was like Rod Stewart or something, but the rapid deployment lighting module. 
you know, the RDLM or whatever it was. But it was it was very clever. And that was sort of where the business started progressing. And then Patrick Sansfield, who unfortunately also just lost, said the business really grew up with Live Aid, where it really became professional. And, and it's, it's very different now than those kind of wild days. There's, there's much more order to it, thankfully. On a lot of it, you hope that there's more safety involved and people understand what production rehearsals are. And I think what's changed is there's the opportunity for more efficiency in terms of fixtures and equipment and all of that. And also, there are better lighting people now. You know, there isn't just a handful anymore. There's lots of people. I think I mentioned to you there was something I saw. It was a Carson Daly or something the other night. And I don't even know what the band was. It looked freaking great. And, it, you know, it's obviously it's some young lighting designer who's doing it. And it, it was awesome. And I think that combination of there's better equipment, cameras have gotten better. That's the thing I was saying earlier, is like a lot more people can light things for TV because cameras have gotten better. So now you have these young guys and gals coming up who are really good lighting people, and they have better equipment to work with, better consoles, they're able to do previs or whatever else it takes, and I think, I think it's made a lot of things a lot better. I know there's some things it hasn't made better. Yep. Um, and, you know, I, I recall you talking about some of that. Would it be... Out of line to ask about that? You mean in rock and roll? Yeah. Well, I think one of the things that's changed, and this is just my opinion, but I do feel like, and a lot of it has to do with the way the business has changed, but I don't feel that there is the lighting designer job as much. And I have to say a couple of things. I think that because of the nature of touring, and it's all expensive, and there, there's now the bean counters are involved. So that changes a lot of things. I, mean, I remember the first tour I went on, and uh, I showed up with my out-of-pocket receipts, and I went to the production manager, and I said, you know, I had everything all put on a piece of paper, and everything was numbered and cross-referenced and all that stuff, and I said, here's my out-of-pocket receipts. And the guy didn't even look up, and he said, there's a bag of cash over there. Just take what you need. <laughs> That's the way it used to be. Now there's, like, whole buses of accountants that go on these tours. And I think there's constant pressure on cutting prices and cutting the costs of stuff because it makes people look, it makes the accountant look better. Hey, look at all the money I saved you. So I think one of the things that has happened is there's not as many people, now big acts are an exception, but in the on their way up act thing. Which is admittedly a much larger swath of the business. Yeah, yep. There's not as much room for quote lighting designers. What they're really looking for is lighting directors slash programmers who can carry them through doing the festivals that they're going to do and then be able to put something together with the production manager that fits in the budget that they can do day after day. And I think the production manager has been financially incentivized to move up, as it were. And I think that production managers wield a lot more clout than they used to. That's not necessarily a good thing, but I think that's the reality. And I think that I, I, I just think it, it's totally based on finances. You know, it's a lot harder for people to fill arenas than it used to be. There just used to be tons and tons of tours out there, and now there's not. Any thoughts on why that is? On why? Yeah. Well, I think the, the music industry has self-imploded. It's just completely different. iTunes changed a lot. They were not able to roll with it. The other problem is there's actually oversaturation of touring, where there is a lot of acts who are just on the road all the time and people don't want to keep shelling out a couple of hundred bucks. You know, when I used to go to concerts at the Meadowlands, it was like $15. And, you know, how many times is somebody going to plunk down 250 even for their, their favorite act? It's just, that's tough for kids. There's so many more people with their hands in the pot than there used to be. And the other thing that, that's changed about the music business is the way these large corporations have done these what are called four-wall deals. So they're the promoter, and they're also the manager of the band. That's a very kind of new concept. and that, that's, So there's this constant pressure for making it less expensive and, and for, in, in that certain echelon. People might take offense with what I'm saying, but that's, that's my opinion, and I've talked to some older, very well-respected lighting designers who have been doing this their whole life in the concert business, 
and they've backed me up on the same thing. You know, the production managers, they don't want lighting designers. You know, we're a pain in the ass to them. You're there working with the artists. You're trying to, you know, they hate nothing more than that you get an artist excited about an idea. They hate that because now they're going to have to tour it around. The accountants are going to have to pay for it, all of that kind of stuff. They hate it. I've seen it firsthand. They don't want you to get the act excited about certain stuff. So that's, I'm sorry, but I think that's the, that's the reality. And, and the other part from the band standpoint is they also want to make money too. And they're not making the money on the records that they used to. That's, that's, what's, that's what's really changed. So now, I say this all the time, the whole world's economy is based on your ability to sell a t-shirt. Where they're really making money <laughs> is on the merch. And if you talk to some of the people who are in that industry, it's really, fa I find it fascinating. Someone like Bon Jovi, I, I've heard some great stories about, you know, the girls loved it and the guys loved it. So everybody wanted t-shirts. And he was doing more money in merch than they were for playing. I find it fascinating. I, I love the business of our business. Looking at some of the concert stuff you've led, this, this kind of shift in how the business works and sort of the elimination of the lighting designer as a position, I, I feel like things like the stuff you did with Neil Young isn't possible in that kind of world. Because it's not about, <laughs> well, how many Ayrton magic panels and Sharpies are we going to have for this? Because, I mean, Neil Young was minimalist. Right. Which is right. unbelievable. Right. But it, it was also unbelievable on, like, say, the Trunk Show. Well, th thanks for noticing. And, um, and that was something that, so Neil Young Trunk Show started out as Neil Young Chrome Dreams. And that was uh, Peggy and I did. And, um, oh, it was collaboration? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it was uh, Peggy and I did that as we had done the Harvest Moon tour many years earlier. And Peggy had a relationship with the management, and that was how, how that came to fruition. Neil's always sort of the anti all of that. I mean, look at the Pano thing that he's out there pushing right now is, is anti-iPhone. It was very funny. There would be announcements before every show about not recording on low-definition MP3. <laughs> you know, it's just crazy, crazy stuff. But um, that tour that we did was purposely minimal. It was an all, essentially an, like an all Parkhand rig. I said to Neil one day when we were doing it, I said, isn't this great? I, he, he really loved it. And I said, isn't this great? You can't tell what year it is. Mm. And he, he just, he thought that was hysterical. Um, and then we made the movie Trunk Show. Jonathan Demme came to shoot that movie. And he was trying to capture Neil as an artist on film, not in a really presentational manner. So I think that that's something different as opposed to, it wasn't just shooting a concert. I think it was, he was really trying to capture Neil. And I, I said to Peggy after we saw a screening, I said, I think this film has such a great patina to it. I said, the equipment is old. That's a great word. For many, many, you know, the songs are old and certainly the musicians are old. You know, there was nothing else like that. And I think that, you know, you have a guy like Jonathan Demme, he's an incredible filmmaker and is such a big fan of Neil. And that's a great collaboration to watch, those couple of guys. Um, the funny story, so obviously, like, Peggy and I are the only theater people in, in that situation. So we had shot the film in, um, at the Tower in Philly. And we were driving home on the bus, and it's a short trip. So Peggy and I rode on Neil's bus, or I don't remember, but it was like Peggy and I, Neil, and Jonathan Demi. And we started talking about vaudeville and Broadway touring and how it differs and, and all that kind of stuff. And Peggy and I brought up, you know, there's this thing that they used to call trunk shows in vaudeville. And we sort of explained how that all worked. And, and it was sort of, that was it. And then cut to a bunch of months later and the thing comes out and it's called Neil Young trunk show. We like, you know, like hit the floor and we saw that. Yeah. I, I'm not saying that they, they took it, because, you know, what we were talking about, but we, that's what we were talking about on the way home on the bus was how uh, um, a vaudevillian would show up with their trunk, and that was everything was in that trunk. And, we, and do, we do it in one. Out. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. So I think that might be how the movie got its name. Uh, in this situation, how did the work break down between the two of you, between you and Peggy Eisenhower? In, in all the stuff I've done with Peggy, <laughs> we sort of decided a very, very long time ago was best idea wins. Huh. And very shortly after you give in to that idea, then you start to really forget who came up with it. You know, I'll say that even though we co-conceived co it though, the big film lights that are in that movie, that, that was really Peggy's idea. 
And Neil just loved them. He totally embraced it. Sometimes, literally, he embraced them. He, he, he really loved the look of it. We would do one thing. I, I got into this thing with him. He talked to me one day about, um, he would do this whole song. It was like this 15-minute song. And he would just like look straight into this. It was a low, I think it was a 10K. That was like really low stage left. And he would start playing with it. And like he would walk into it and I would make it brighter and he would back off and, and he would play harder and I would pull it down. And, and he did this sort of epic Dance. battle. Yeah, yeah, it was like this epic battle with his 10K. And it was just extraordinary. I mean, he really, he loved the whole look of the thing and stuff. It wasn't easy to tour all that stuff. You know, it was not really meant for touring, but some creative people did some creative packaging and, and uh, you know, away you go. So, I mean, I would just say that the stuff, anything I've ever done with Peggy, including cabaret, is always best idea wins. And if you just roll with it and you trust the other person, then you always get the best result. It is sort of funny that that's the, that that's the movie you worked on together. Because it's, you know, it's like... I never thought of that, yeah. Strangely, you know, even more than you, when I think of Peggy Eisenhower, I think of this kind of musical cueing. Razor sharp, sharp enough to cut you with. Right. Like you look mm -hmm. at Chicago or you look at uh, Dreamgirls or yeah. um, Burlesque. Well, Peggy's a Although musician. Then this is a, a thing where there's really not a ton of cueing. Yeah, yeah, and purposely so. I mean, it was sort of the anti, all the hitting every bump and, and all that kind of stuff. It was much more about trying to bring the musical emotion and just sort of reinterpret that visually and, and keep it simple. I mean, the only moving lights we had was two guys in running beam projectors as follow spots that were at the end of the first truss, and, and that was it. You know, in later incarnations, I mean, I sent Marty out, Marty Postma as the lighting director and stuff, and in later inc incarnations, and he took them all through festivals and all that kind of stuff. He had to incorporate moving lights. But it was never, and part of it is, I, I mean, just that's so not Neil, strobes and, and all of that kind of stuff, mm -hmm. and, you know. Really love that. I wish we could get back to that in some other yeah. acts, even, you know, new acts. Well, I think I think that's what made it different. Mm -hmm. You know, it was like, that's what made it stand out was, and, and the other part of it was in the way that he plays, like we did, there was no recorded cues for that at all. It was all just submasters and, and we just sort of assigned groups of things to, to different songs and away you go and you know we so so we were making and that was part of why you know peggy toured with it like we we both put it together i think we rehearsed um in uh northern california where neil lives and then um we both stayed with it for the first couple of dates then peggy did like sort of the middle leg and then i took over for her and did the other leg the, the last leg through new york and then um we both went to europe to kick off the tour and then i took I took it on the road, uh, and Peggy came back home, and um, and then we. I think I think it lasted for like three years or something. Uh, awesome. And so you know we've we've sort of danced around it a bit. Obviously, we want to talk about Cabaret, another project that you collaborated on with Peggy. Right. But uh, sort of singular in that you did it twice. Yeah, you don't really get to do that. That kind of show twice in the same venue, with sixteen years in between. Um, so obviously, lots of stuff had changed. One of them is, when we first did it, we did it with these co-directors named Sam Mendes and Rob Marshall, who then went on to become Sam Mendes and Rob Marshall. <laughs> you, you know, that neither of them had directed a movie or anything like that. And they're obviously both brilliant theater artists. And it was a thrill to do it the first time, and then it was even more of a thrill uh, the second time. Um, but there was a lot of things that had to... The whole process of getting the show back was a very long and very deliberate one. Um, you know, a lot of equipment had changed. What we did it with originally was not really an option anymore. I think originally it was like VL6s and VL5 arcs. And that was just not, we couldn't saddle the show with that this time around. So we went on a hunt. Um, the VL5 arcs were replaced with Mac 700s in studio mode because sound was of the utmost importance. Sam made a very big deal about it, about the lighting system having to be quiet. And the other thing, you know, Studio 54 was built as an opera house. So it is built to project sound all over the place. And the thing about Cabaret is there's a lot of very long, intense book scenes. 
So you just can't have all this fan noise whirring away during these book scenes. It, you know, it's a very intimate, the stage isn't very big, it's a very intimate environment. Um, so the, the noise became absolutely critical. So Peggy and I did a lot of, a lot of work to that end. Most of the front of house stuff was replaced with Best Boys because those, those are frankly, they're, they're nice and bright. They're very bright, but also they are very quiet, you know, in the right mode. That was a really big deal. And then we sort of approached it as we weren't trying to recreate what we did originally, but we were trying to use that as the stepping off point. So there was a lot of planning that had to take place. Um, we had to do a lot of in the studio, just getting, I, I think I found like an old show file on an old laptop or something like that. And so that was just the conventionals because when we originally did it, it was an obsession two and a, uh, some kind of one of the very light boards. Then I had subsequently in the 16 years since we did Broadway, I had gone around, Peggy and I then did the, the first national tour and I think the second national, but then I did all the ones after that. So I did like the non-equities and I did all the European productions that we did in Australia and all of that kind of stuff. In fact, I mean, it opened a year ago now on Broadway, but I think I had done it as recently as like three years ago in Paris. When we had done it, I think we did it three times in Paris. So it was a very slow, laborious walk up of, of everything to get us to sort of the first day in the theater. So we did a lot of that. Jonathan Spencer did it for us with Tim Rogers as the programmer. They did it at ETC, uh, walked the program up, did a lot of inputting, took the program that we, I did it with in Paris and took all the moving light information out of that and then sort of said, this equals that, this equals this and started us off with something. And then we made sure that we had a couple of days before the cast came on stage to just walk through all the light cues. Um, in fact, there's a funny, I think it's on the Roundabout website, there's a time-lapse thing of them building, rebuilding 54, and we're actually in the end of it because we were there for a couple of days putting all the, the cues back together. So, Did you have just as much tech time, or were the producers like, oh, you've done this before? No, I, look, I, you know, Rob... Sam and Rob were like, this is what we need. And, and they were very, um, and the roundabout wanted it to be right. So no, there was, there was um, enough tech time for sure. I mean, the, the beauty of it was we all sort of had a, uh, a jumping off place that we didn't have the, the time before. Um, you know, but, but the one thing that I can say that was really great in the tech was nobody ever said, well, this is how we did it last time. Nobody That's ever, surprising. Yeah, nobody ever said that. We were going full steam ahead. Um, you know, this was a, a an updated version. You know, we, we weren't holding anything, um, you know, that it had to be the way we had done it the last time. That's really great, actually. Yeah. I mean, look, why would you do that with artists like Sam Mendes and Rob Marshall? To have those, if they say they want a blue, we'll make a blue this time. Right. You know, uh, um, I trust them a thousand percent. So I feel like what we came up with was... Um, I mean, like, it's an amazing show, and I think it's one of the great American musicals, and part of it is because of what it says and the journey that it takes you on. And um, something interesting, I only just found this out, that the version of Cabaret that's at Studio 54, you can't get. Like, if you, if you license the production to do it, you can't get that yeah, version. Yeah, it's like Pippin. Yeah, well, maybe this time, and that exact script and stuff does not exist um, so that's really the only place you can see it. But the, the thing that is amazing about that show is it's essentially six bentwood chairs and like a couple of boxes and stuff on stage, and that's about it. It really makes all the scenes work. And the other thing that's amazing about it, I think, is the transitions. In particular, there's a, the transition coming out of mine hair. All the girls are pretty much in their underwear the whole night, but they're smoking giant cigars and they're singing mine hair and the playoff to mine hair it's just a, like a little bit of a reprise to the number and the girls are doing this <coughs> spinning dance and it basically goes bop 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 and on the button you're in the next scene and you just saw the whole thing change in front of you and but you didn't realize that it was changing and i i said this to both sam and to rob it was like 
if you were to film that, nobody would believe you that that was all one take. Like they would, it, it's as close to a jump cut in the theater as I think I've ever seen. You know what I mean? So it's like, totally. if you had filmed this, you would think, oh, they just they just did that as a cut. Right. But these guys conceived of a way to do that on stage and stuff. And then there's there's also another really great transition um, in in the show where the MC is up top and he's singing, and Sally Bowles leaves underneath. And there's only three doors on stage, and this door opens up, and there's a blue background, and you just know she's walking out on the street. And then she comes back around, and she enters now through the house, and that same door opens, and now there's Max, the club owner there, and he's smoking a cigar, but the background is red, and you know that that's the club. And it's just, it's a, I, I think it's like this magical thing. that That's what the theater does that nothing else can do. It's the same door. It's the same backing. We just turned it from blue to red. That's all that happened. But, but you believe it. But you yeah. absolutely know what, what has happened. Mm-hmm. And that's that's those guys. That's totally Rob and, and Sam. I mean, you know, we're there to to serve it and to make it as good as we can. But um, just to sort of think of it, you know, and and that's I think that's what you want to do as an artist is like they think of it. Okay, we have to do this transition, and then we're in there saying, okay, let's we're gonna make it blue when she goes out, and the next time it opens is red, and that just supports the idea. So, what can you tell me about theater? How did this dude who loved these rock and roll shows back in the early '80s end up working on Broadway as a lighting designer? And what can you tell me about theater in general? Well, I, I well I did say you know I always wanted to do more than just any any single thing. I, I always did, and I think that I've been super fortunate and super lucky. And I say a prayer every night, being grateful that I can make a living doing this. And I think anybody else who works in this business should also say a prayer every night and be grateful. Um, it's a very hard business. Um, I think that. You know, not enough people necessarily want to talk about that. But just in my case, it was maybe it's some, I always make a joke that it's some version of ADD or whatever. But I do feel like I, I really like going from one thing to the other. And that cross-pollination brings a lot of stuff with it. You know, I think I'm a better rock and roll lighting designer because I do Broadway. I think I'm a better Broadway designer because I know how to do rock and roll and especially because I know how to tour it. I mean, just, just on that alone... I mean, we've probably had this conversation numerous times. You know, I think that the the Broadway folks are a little bit allergic when it comes to the touring. They're allergic to the methods that rock and roll uses. Rock and roll is the science of moving things around quickly. And not everyone's always willing to embrace that. And I think that... Logistics rules the day. That's for sure. Absolutely. Certain. Yeah. Right. And, and here's the thing. Okay. You have a Bon Jovi tour. It's 16 or 17 trucks, whatever, doing one-nighters. Well, how does that work? That works because there's a loading dock that has four trucks at a time. You build the lighting at one end of the arena. You build the stage at the other end. You lift the lighting up. You roll the stage underneath. There's a lot of room to do that. Now, say you got four trucks, and you're trying to fit on one stage with one door. How is that any, any different? In my mind, it's exactly the same thing. You know, load in for a tour that has to do a one-nighter or whatever with four trucks. That's a rock and roll day, no matter how you cut it. So, again, I think that there's, you can't be allergic to all of this technology that's out there. And methods. I, I, it's funny, I talk to production electricians and they talk about, oh, yeah, we did this tour and there was, you know, this many bajillion lights front of house. Like, oh, how'd that go? Well, it didn't. You know, guess what? As soon as the designer leaves, they cut it all. So I've always been of the attitude, I'd rather do less really well and make it tourable than try to do too much. It's it's never going to happen. They're going to cut it when you leave anyway, you know. Um, They have to make the curtain. They're not going to hold the curtain every night. They're not going to hold the loadout. You hold up the loadout, you don't make it to the next city. So you you have to go in there with these parameters. It's the producer's job to set the parameters, but it's the designer's job to think outside the box. That That's just, maybe that's cliche to say that, but it's really the truth. I, I have always, always cross-pollinated any Broadway-type touring that I've done. I've done a lot of them that I've always used all the methods and techniques that, that I learned doing rock and roll, particularly when it comes to things like front of house. I mean, things like, we've done a bunch of tours now with some moving lights front of house. Well, I've specify the moving light that can run on 110 and can and use wireless DMX. You've just saved 
a giant amount of time. That's the hardest thing that they have to do in a load-in is get all that stuff front of house and get all the cable and power to it. So now if you can do it and have a couple of lights that run on D, on wireless DMX and just plug into whatever circuits happen to be on the balcony. Because there's going to be one ten circuits there. Yeah, hey. yeah, you know that. Yeah. So, you know, that kind of stuff, it doesn't sound like a lot, but it makes all the difference in the world to those guys who are on the road who have to put it up every day. Well, it's the simplest thing, you know, think about that case with the 400-foot front-of-house whip that has to get out there if you want to plug power up those right. 208 moving lines. That has to get out there, and it has to get struck it at the end of the struck. night. And in a lot of venues, there's not the, the routes aren't easy. Things are changing and getting better, but it's Well, not, firewalls are very yeah. real things for yep. a reason, and yep. a lot of places there is no pass-through that's convenient. And I'm sure you've never been like, oh, I wish I had more lights front of house. You've probably dialed well, that in. And you know, it, well, it depends on what it is. Yeah. But I think that, again, it, it, that's part of, like, you'd really, you're way better off doing less really well than stretching everything to the thinnest possible breaking point. I mean, look, I, I was just in a venue where they were complaining about a tour that just came through that had 3,500 pound speaker towers. 3,500 pounds. And they were like, I think they said they were 27 feet tall, something. Like, yeah, it sounds great. Where is that going to work in a theater? Yeah. You know? So guess what happens, guys, after you've left? They're going to start nibbling on those boxes and taking them down one by one by one. Right. right but the, but the, the road crew has to make it work. Yeah. You know? The general manager or whoever does not want to hear, oh, we had to hang those other 15 lights, and that's why we held the curtain. Nobody, that's not, it's not going to happen. And, and, and it's the same thing for scenery. There's been tons and tons of tours that have been closed because they can't move it. And so either you embrace some of the techniques that rock and roll uses with their 16 truck one-nighters or your tour closes. And the, th the thing about all of that stuff, the way I have always looked at it is if I'm doing a Broadway show, I am a sweat equity investor in that show. I have to do my best I can to make sure it's successful in every way. And that includes putting out the tour that if you saddle the tour, with too much stuff, it's just going to close. And how is that good for anybody? You know, it's it's not. Or they're going to close it and put it back out as a non-equity tour, and then no one gets paid. So I think that that sweat equity investor thing, I think that's a very important thing for designers. And, and even just for Broadway shows. You can't saddle it with so much stuff that it can't make its nut every week. This sounds a little bit like what you said at the very, very beginning. When you're talking about how you end up being the person in the middle who's like, you know, these three people won't talk to each other and I'm going to be the one to sort out how that works. Similarly, on, you know, on the touring side of things, it's there's there are people that, well, yeah, that, that's what we're doing and I don't care that that saddles right. the tour in some way. And it's like, well, you know, it's not my responsibility to figure out how that works. It's someone else's job. And it's, well, you, are you sure? I, I think it's our job. I'm sorry. It is your job. You know, in theater, we're alchemists. That's what we are. We're alchemists. We are trying to make something out of nothing. And part of being a theater artist is understanding how things have to go together. I, I think it's, it's critical. And when somebody says, I'm just the idea guy, well, that's great. But I don't think your tour is going to make it because you, you saddled it with too much stuff or whatever. This is part of our job. If you don't like, if you want to just be the idea guy and you want to just make pictures, then go paint. But this is a... You know, I say this all the time. You've heard me say it a million times. Theater is a collaborative sport. We all have to work together. And if you want to just take that attitude, then it's not gonna—it's not really gonna work. Part of being a theater artist is understanding theater technology. You know, Rembrandt understood how to mix the paints, and, and he made concessions too. You're just not aware of what they were. Absolutely, that—that that exactly right. You know, the thing still came out of him. It still came out of his head. It didn't exist prior to him. He's still the creator. But, yeah, there's limitations to what you could do with the paint. There was limitations to what you could do with the brush. You know, there was limitations to what the canvas or panel was and all that stuff. And, and he, worked, he worked with that. That's part of being an artist. You know, so it, it's, it floors me when people say, well, I'm just the idea guy or, or whatever. That, that's, no, we're theater artists. And that's part of it. And it's like you said a couple of times, there's more and more talented lighting designers out yeah. there. So you have great ideas if you can't do it all. Then, right. You know. Right. So, yeah. You know, the thing that I've heard general managers say is it's not what they cost, it's what they make you spend. Hmm. And I think that's pretty... Accurate. Yeah. 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 
something I feel like I've noticed, you know, because I'm a big safety proponent and, you know, I'm, you know, ETCP certified and I feel like everybody should get ETCP certified mm -hmm. if they're a technician, is that failures of any kind are caused by a domino effect. It, it can be one thing that has much, much larger consequences and you have to understand what those are. And I feel like one really good example of that is a, thing, is a tour that we worked on, on, I think it's like 2010, and we were working in the second act and there was this one set element that says that somebody wanted to put in a, on a given place on stage. And you said, don't put it there, put it two feet to the left or two feet to the right because then it'll be at a grid focus point and I can point lights at it without having to get it out to do a special focus. Right. And it was, look at the steps that follow after that. Right. It was, well, now you're saying that that piece has to be unpacked before it's needed so people can focus on it. That means that truck has to be unpacked before it gets needed. That means the thing can't stay on the truck until the end of Act 1, which right. is how we want, we want to try and run this. Understand all the things that that one decision is going, are going to cause. Right. And it's a tour. So two feet doesn't matter. You know, you're playing the Fox Theater in St. Louis. No one cares. It just doesn't matter. So, yeah, you can keep insisting. But I'm here I'm trying to tell you, here's one little thing we can do. It's going to save a lot of time. And maybe the tour is going to stay out a little bit longer and you're going to keep getting a weekly. You know, I think, again, that's part of being a theater artist. There's compromises and there's what can you do to make it flow better? You know, that, that's, we're alchemists. We have to do that. We have to make it out of nothing. It would be easy to stand there and stamp your feet and say, no, it has to be here. And it's like, okay, great. So now you're just sat, you've just saddled the production with this much more time and it's going to be that much. And then guess what's going to happen, guys, when you leave anyway? So why not, why not make it really good right. <laughs> when you have your eyes on it, then know that it's just going to fall apart when you don't. What are some of the downsides to working in this end of the business specifically or, you know, parts of the business like this? Yeah. Well, frankly, uh, I'll say... Have, having talked about so many of the positive things. Yeah. No, well, look, I, I think there's a lot of great positive things. But if you're a young person and you're starting out, you should know that there's a lot of not-so-great things. And there's a lot of what I call artist abuse. There's a lot of that. And I've, I, I've always said this, and it's, if you're willing to be a, taken advantage of, you will. You can find somebody who will go out and be a lighting director for 500 bucks a week for a rock tour. You can find somebody. But how good, how good are they going to be? So I think Gary Fell said it to me once. It's like, as long as you're working in a business that people really want to be in, there will always be people being abused. And I think that... There, there's a lot of it, and it, it comes in different forms. But I, I think the thing that sort of my big kind of pet peeve that, that I've seen happen over and over again is producers have all come up with ways to do things cheaper. And a lot of the things that have happened now is they'll go out of town. The out of town is not a true out of town anymore. It'll be a regional theater production. So now you're going to go somewhere and you're going to work for a couple of weeks at this regional theater rate. And you do your best to have what's called a right of first refusal if the show moves. But there's all kinds of things connected to that, if you can even get it. I, I don't want to call out specific people, but there are some people who don't have a problem with abusing artists. And what happens is they take their show out of town. They don't like the director. They don't like this, that, the other thing. They change it. And now the show comes into town with a whole new creative staff. Now, I'm a sweat equity investor. I went out to, your, to help you with your show so you could realize it. I may not have invested financially in your show, but I've certainly invested my time. I've certainly called in all my favors for you because we went to a regional theater that maybe doesn't have moving lights or it has a very small budget or whatever. And then you have no problem dropping people like me off on your way into town. And that happens more often than people probably realize. You know, go on the index and look at who did, oh, you know, a couple of Broadway shows that have just recently opened. Who did them, let's say, a paper mill? And then who did it on Broadway? You know, and it, it's, it's that kind of stuff. And I think it's rampant. And I think it's very difficult to avoid it, but you have to know about it. And, you know, you have to go into these situations knowing the possibility of that, that that can happen and be as best prepared as you can be, but it's difficult. I've done a number of them that were, you know, like I said, 
out of town, you go there, you call in all your favors, you're doing it for no money. And when I say no money, I mean no money. And I live in the New York City area and I have a family to support. And these producers have no problem, oh yeah, come on with us and come do this thing for no money for a couple of weeks. And then, oh yeah, but we're gonna cut you out on, the, on our way into town. And nobody ever wants to talk about it, but it happens. You mentioned your family. With, with all of the sort of insanity that goes with leaving town to work on films and work on tours and work on out-of-town jobs, and even just with working in town on a, a, on a, on a musical schedule, Mm-hmm. And yet you've managed to really, rem- you, have, you haven't been absentee, you've managed to really right. ma- create and maintain a real relationship with your family and with your daughter. Now, how have you done that? And how have you sort of made that a priority? Well, I, the, here's the priorities. I'm a provider first, I'm a father second, I'm a husband third, and I'm a lighting designer fourth. And that's, that's just how it is. Now, one and four are connected, obviously, but... I have to provide for my family, first and foremost, no matter what. I also happen to have a great wife, Arlene, who always said she knew what she was getting into. And part of why I think the three of us are close is because, you know, Arlene has dragged our daughter all over the planet to be with me. And we, we've always done that since she was, you know, she learned how to walk in theaters. That's been a, a, a super important thing. And you know what? That's just, that's part of who I am. My family's coming. They're going to be here. I don't take them to Oberhaus in Germany, but, you know, she's been to Paris a bunch of times and London and Amsterdam and Barcelona and uh, Madrid and Rome, Milan. So I think, I think that that's the biggest thing. You know, we also happen to have a great kid who has been cool enough to come along and we've treated her with respect. Uh, I won't say, you know, as an adult, but... As she has grown up, you know, she's just, this is what she's done her whole life. And she knows that, you know, when we go on the road, daddy's working in the theater. My my wife has just been brilliant with being a single mom when she has to be and uh, making sure that, you know, Sophia has always had all the things that she needs. And, you know, we're we're a team. We've always said it. And uh, I think the three of us are very close because, mostly because of what my wife has done to to hold us all together. And then also the, the other great thing for me has been that when they come to wherever I am, I end up seeing a lot more than just the two blocks between the hotel and the, and the <laughs> theater. And we've, um, you know, I've been fortunate enough, I usually do at least one show a year in Europe and um, they, you know, usually come and I, uh, often uh, the producers, I'll get them to give me a, a stipend for housing instead of a hotel and hotels are very expensive in Europe. Uh, so we can usually find a really great apartment. You know, we were in Rome and stayed a block from the Colosseum for, I was there for a month and they came for a couple of weeks and stuff. And my parents came and I, I mean, like, you know, it's a lot of time away. I, I always say to anybody who's thinking about going into it, you know, get some good luggage. There's a lot of time on the road. It, it is difficult to have a family. The other really big thing that happened for me, I will say, because I guess it's about 10 years ago now, is Skype. And people didn't know about Skype. And when I, I was in Germany, and it was some German dudes who turned me on to it. And they said, oh, there's this thing called Skype and this other program called Festoon. At the time, my daughter was three. Three-year-olds don't understand a telephone. You know, they, they, just, they just don't. And you can talk all you want, but they don't get it. But once she could see me, and we could talk, and then she could see what was going on in the theater, that just made all the difference in the world. In fact, just last week, I was in... Um, Seattle at the Fifth Avenue doing Carousel. And uh, my daughter is now 13, is turned into a real theater geek. And so her and my wife watched from Seattle. I just um, FaceTimed them and they watched all of Carousel in the kitchen at home. But but going back to the thing about, about Skype, I did an article, there was some magazine or something at the time asked me to write an article saying, what are you using now? And everybody would write, oh, I found this new strobe light, I found this new strip light, whatever. And I said, Skype. I said, computers are great, but there was other ways to do things. You know, your banking and all that stuff, there was other ways to do it. But now that I can sit in a theater, I can talk to my daughter at home on my breaks, and she can see me, and we can have a real relationship, I said, that's just changed everything. Um, And it used to be it was Skype and then this thing Festoon. You'd have to hook it in. You'd have to use Festoon to make it work. Now it's just people don't even think about it. But at the time, when, when my daughter was really young, 
that was a really big deal. Awesome. It sounds like you've really used your career as a, instead of a limitation with your family, is like benefiting them and your daughter. And, oh, yeah, absolutely. It's really great. I mean, I, I, you know, and again, you know, my family has been so supportive from really from day one, um, even when they didn't quite understand what it was I was doing and stuff. But they, they come all the time. I mean, my, my parents came to a bunch of places in Europe. I've had aunts and uncles show up. I just had my cousin from L.A. was in two weeks ago, and I took her over to Saturday Night Live and all that kind of stuff. I mean, I've, I've always tried to share. Um, I know, Carrie, you, you two are more with the, the, the dance types. I do. Is any yeah. of that true on the dance side? Um, any of that true? Yeah, I mean, I'm just thinking about, you know, remounting dance work and stuff like that. But in terms of family life, it's, uh, yeah, I'm able to, Jeremy's able to tag along and stuff like that. It's, it's great. I, I yeah. think it's important. You know, I mean, we get to go places in other parts of the country. I just got back from Africa um, in October that I would never get to go. Right. To, you know, it's right. Wonderful. Right. I, I said that when you know we went to Rome, and I, I was working there for a month, and it was for stage entertainment. And I was like, who gets to do this? Even if you stop through on a on a rock tour, you're probably in Rome only for a couple of days. But you know, to to really be there for like a month and then have my family come, and oh my God, are so freaking lucky. You working know. with the crew and getting to know yeah. them, it's yeah. nice. Yeah. So you have a whole bunch of products that are in catalogs. You have like your own Roscoe color, which is awesome, by the way. Thanks. How does how does that work? And like, how do you get the things that you want from the manufacturers that you deal with? I think the answer to that is really simple. You just have to ask. And I think that any of the manufacturers will take your call as a designer and just find somebody at the company and tell them what you want. You know, Gary Fales, who's the president of City Theatrical, has an entire business based on people asking for products. And uh, I have a bunch of stuff in his catalog just because I've asked for it. And it was a, a specific need. He's really great at creating stuff. And if it's things that is something he thinks he can sell, then they go into the catalog. Um, I'm having lunch with him on Friday to talk about more of that exact same kind of stuff. Same thing with all the Roscoe gobos and stuff. Those were gobos I wanted. And then I, you know, I sat there and talked to them and here's why I want this gobo. And they're like, great, can we include it in the catalog? And the answer is just always yes. So I would encourage anybody, if you, if there, if you want something, pick up the phone and call a manufacturer. You can call Josh Alamy at Roscoe. You can call George Masick at Clay Packy, um, find somebody at high end, call um, Tony Perez at Martin, and they will. They all want to hear from people. They all want to hear. They want to make what you want to use. So I would highly encourage anybody, if there's something you want, pick up the phone and ask somebody. They will take your call. They'd be more than happy to talk to you about it. All right. I feel like we're winding down here. All right. Um, so. Mike, do you have any things you want to leave us with? Well, here's here's – uh, my, a couple of my final thoughts, I, and I think speaking specifically to maybe young people who are thinking about getting in the business, I would say you should only do this if you have to do it. If there's, if there's something else that you think you want to do, you should do that. The only reason to get into this, especially on the design side, is because you have to do it. It, it's, it's, it has to be like your passion to, to do it. Otherwise, there's a lot easier ways to make a living. And, and it's tough. It is not, I do not think it's an easy career choice at all. And I've, I'm super lucky. I've been, I've been very, very lucky and very fortunate. But I do not think that it's, it's not a traditional job that has traditional benefits. And, you know, unless you're going a local one stagehand route, um, there's a lot of other things that you need to learn about that just isn't provided for in this job. You know, um, the thing that I suggest to people all the time is real estate. I wish that schools taught people a little bit more about business, about running a business. You know, maybe they should have classes in QuickBooks or whatever. But, you know, understanding how business works, it's called show business. It's not called show art. It's, this, it's, the, it's a real thing. This is, it's not a game. I think you also have to look at things long term. I know that I started out very early on thinking long term in and I think that, as I always say, I encourage people to invest in real estate. And that's when I brought up the house out east earlier. That was not from show business. That was from investing in real estate. And the thing about real estate is it's less permanent than a tattoo. 
and look at how many, ta- how many people have tattoos. You know, you can always sell it. But I think that for our business, when you have to look long-term about being able to retire and all of that kind of stuff, I can't think of another investment vehicle that works the way real estate does. That's a more or less safe investment. You know, you can try Wall Street, but Wall Street, you're never going to time it. You're never going to beat the market. It's a racket and it's is rigged. Well, so much of the messaging is about invest in the market, invest in the market, get in young, invest in the market. And right. that's, I mean, I know for me, I didn't think of investing as being anything other than that. Right. Because that's just so what the messaging is about. Right. Of course, they want your money. You know, but but the, the reality is, you, you, like I said, you're never going to beat it. You're never going to time it. It's completely rigged against you. So I'm not saying you shouldn't do anything in real in, in, in Wall Street, but it can't be everything. You, I, and I think that it has to be real estate. And the way that I got in, into real estate was I was in like a doctor's office or something like that. And there was a Forbes magazine and there was an interview with Alice Cooper. And I said, oh, what is Alice Cooper doing in Forbes magazine? So I read it, and the thing that stuck out in, when I was reading it was he said, I made more money in real estate than I ever made in the music business. And that's the only article or anything I have ever read about real estate. Um, I've never been greedy, but I've always invested in it. And I think that, you know, long term, you're not going to get a pension from USA that is significant. You're not going to get Social Security that's significant. You know, so there needs to be some other things, and no one wants to tell you that. But like I said, just think about that. Real estate is less permanent than a tattoo. That's great advice. Well, the, the other thing I would say, too, is um, I, I think it's important, it's always been important to me, how I pick jobs. And, you know, I've always, since I remember, I always wanted to work in commercial theater. And I love, I love the aspect of commercial because everybody's on the same team. Everybody's working for one thing. And everybody lives or dies by how good that show is. Again, it's a, it's a team sport, but there's a, there's a certain, um, you know, the com- commercial theater is like going to the majors. Nobody becomes a baseball player and wants to stop at the minors. You want to go all the way. So for me, that's what commercial theater was. But then when I look at, at jobs and, and when they come in and how do I pick jobs, and um, I've always had sort of my five things of how I pick a job. The first one being money. Is it a, is it a good fee? Does it have a weekly attached to it? Anything like that. The second one is contacts. Is it a good way to make contacts with the set designer, director, some artist that you want to work with? Um, third one is future potential. Will it move to Broadway or have a touring life or something like that? Um, fourth one is showcase. Is it good exposure for me? You know, good for the website. And then last one is schedule. Does it fit in the schedule? Can I do it? Uh, so to do a review... What do you have running right now? What all have you actually won and been nominated for? Because I think, I think I've lost count. Well, Peggy and I were nominated for Tony Award for Cabaret, first time we did it. Um, I was nominated for an Emmy for Garth Brooks in Central Park as part of the lighting team with that. And then last year I was nominated for an Emmy again for The Tonight Show. So that's kind of those things. Okay. Running, so I have Cabaret is running on Broadway, and then we're going to put a tour out next year. Uh, I have Camelot touring, a national tour. Um, I have Carousel running at the Fifth Avenue in Seattle. So I have the single word CA musicals covered <laughs> between Cabaret, Camelot, and uh, Carousel. And then I have Beauty and the Beast running in Moscow. And uh, I heard today it looks like we're going to, Beauty will run there for a year and then uh, we'll do a Dutch national tour in the fall. Which is great. I, I love I love Holland a lot. It's a really great place, and they have a great theater tradition in Holland, mostly because of this guy Joop van Ender who started Stage Entertainment. But in these tiny little towns in Holland, they have great theaters. It, it's amazing uh, what what the facilities are like in Holland. So anyway, that'll be in in the fall, and then coming up, um, I did a Comedy Central special uh, with Bridget Everett. That's coming up, I, I think, her. and then uh, she's, she's that was really fun. Um, I have the CBS Upfront coming up at Carnegie Hall. Uh, that's a really great exercise in lighting something for live and for TV at the same time, because <laughs> that's for if anybody doesn't know what an Upfront is, that's basically where the networks roll out all of their shows, and then they book commercials upfront based on what 
that people see. So this one thing, like CBS will make, they'll book between 2.3 and 2.4 billion, with a B, dollars of advertising from this one event. So there's no pressure. But it's a great exercise. It's again where I work with Billy Steinberg as an engineer. It's a great exercise in something, making it look great live and for television because it gets broadcast. Um, I have an uh, out-of-town tryout of a new Broadway show coming up. Um, hopefully it will happen over the summer. And then uh, I just got wind of a, was asked to be involved with a new comedy series on IFC that's uh, mockumentaries, essentially. Nice. And um, so I would just light the music stuff that's on it. So it sounds like totally fun. Yeah. So it's a good, good cross-section there of stuff. Awesome. Very All cool. Right. Thank you very much for, for joining us, Mike. Uh, my yes. pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. This was really, um, I, I feel like I was talking about myself all the time, but I, I do think this is important for posterity and for especially for any young kids out there. And if they want to get in touch with me, it's www.mikeomatic.com, uh, M-I-K-E-O-Matic, M-A-T-I-C, or just mikebaldasari.com. Okay. Right. Thank you very much. Thanks. Thanks for listening to the second half of our interview with Mike Baldessari. Thank you to Mike. Check him out on the web at MikeBaldessari.com or MikeOmatic.com. Thanks to my co-host, Carrie Wood. You can find her on the web at CarrieWoodLD.com. This has been the Casting Light Podcast, a production of Casting Light Incorporated. Visit us on the web at CastingLightPodcast.com on Twitter at Podcasting Light, and on Facebook at Casting Light Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Merritt. Thanks for listening, and have a good show.